This is part one of a two-part conversation with Dr. Deborah Saxon of Butler University, where she teaches religion. Deborah is a specialist on early Christian texts and those texts dealing with women and written by women. She has a unique perspective then on the role of gender in early Christianity. So here is part one of a two-part conversation. Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is uh, Paul Axon. I'm here this morning with uh, Deborah Saxon. We, we uh, knew each other in Scuba, Japan. How many Americans can say that they met up in Scuba, Japan? Uh, you and John, how long were you in uh, Scuba? We lived there for uh, five years, I believe. And you're teaching at uh, Butler? Yes, I teach classes in the Department of Religion at Butler University. Deborah, you've been on quite a, a journey. You started life as a fundamentalist Baptist, but you're not there anymore. Tell us a bit of your journey and your studies. Yeah, I was, well, first of all, I should just rephrase. I think I was not in scuba quite that long. Uh, it felt like I was. I was probably there about two and a half or three years, probably about two and a half years. I was actually in Japan, uh, in scuba particularly, partly due uh, to the influence of friends that I had met at Baylor University, which is where I did my undergraduate studies and where my father and my grandfather father also studied and, and did studies in religion. And so um, I guess I'd have to just clarify a little bit to say that the Baptist tradition that I grew up in uh, strongly emphasized the priesthood of the believer. And so we were not fundamentalist, uh, but unfortunately in the past, oh, hmm. uh, 30 years, there, has, there have been uh, kinds of fundamentalism creeping into the Baptist church. But I was, I was really raised in that tradition of believing that Every Christian can read the Bible for themselves and that there are a variety of interpretations that have come down to us. And so I think it's that, mm-hmm. that overriding, not just a belief, but, but a way of thinking about things and a thinking about our journey as Christians uh, that has really guided me. And I think the other thing that's guided me from the time I was very young is that my father uh, and I used to have a lot of conversations about theology. And I remember as a teenager feeling like maybe some of the questions that I asked were verging on the border of something not appropriate to ask, maybe think questions that just shouldn't be thought or asked. And I remember talking to my father about that. And my father really reassured me and said that it's impossible to hurt God by any of the kinds of questions that we ask, that God is so much greater than all of our questions or doubts or thoughts, and that that it's a good thing to be always continually asking and seeking mm. to understand things better and more clearly. And so I think um, it's those kinds of ideas that have guided my own my own journey as I've evolved and grown in my understanding. I'm completely wrong then. It sounds like, in fact, that your formation gave you the, the foundation then to, to develop 
in the way you have. Yeah, I would have to say that's true. Although, although um, my father was a minister within the Baptist tradition, and so many of the people I was surrounded by were not as generous in their interpretations as as my own father was. So there was always kind of this interesting feeling of being in different worlds simultaneously. Salvation was was often seen very individualistically in terms of, and, and as um, I think about my elderly mother now, who still I think sometimes has doubts about whether she's really good enough or whether she's really saved. There was this element of fear that operates within our tradition as well. And so I considered a real gift that somehow my father, who had also been raised in that more conservative, religiously strict kind of point of view, somehow was able to glimpse something a little bit broader and more inclusive. Something that he didn't always voice or articulate fully, I think, but yet which persisted and which guided my own steps. He gave you freedom. Yeah, the freedom to, that sounds beautiful. Yeah, he really did. And, and so it was very interesting because in my case, I... I studied at Baylor, but I did not study religion. I was in the humanities department. I studied languages, English, Spanish, and German literature. And I had a Japanese roommate. And so after I graduated, ironically, uh, I ended up in Japan, lived there for a couple of years, really loved teaching English to people who didn't speak it as their first language, and ended up going and doing a master's in English, English and applied linguistics. And so for many years, I had a career as a teacher of, of English to international students and students abroad. But my family and I ended up in Colorado Springs uh, after we left Japan. And I started hearing about courses at the Iliff School of Theology, which is a, a Methodist-affiliated school of theology in Denver, Colorado, and has a long-standing relationship with the University of Denver there. And I was exposed to uh, the teaching of a woman named Anne Graham Brock, who was teaching classes about extra-canonical text. And I was very curious because she promised that in those classes, we would be able to once again hear the voices of people who had been followers of Jesus, but whose voices had been silenced, either suppressed or lost over the centuries, and particularly the voices of women who were early followers of, of Jesus. Mm. And so um, I took some of her classes, and, and I started reading texts that had really only started circulating in English back mm. in the 70s. And they're often referred to as Gnostic Gospels. I find that terminology somewhat problematic. We can talk about that. But I started reading things like the Gospel of Mary and the Gospel of Thomas. And I became very intrigued because what we've come to realize is that these texts were circulating very early on. Scholars will argue about when they're to be dated but certainly they were circulating in the second century in most cases. And just as with some of the books of our own Bible, the Gospels, for example, where there are layers from the first century, but things perhaps have been added or deleted uh, over time, there may be some very early sayings of Jesus in a book like 
the Gospel of Thomas, for example. So um, what I found is that they, that those books, number one, did emphasize the role of women as leaders in early Christian communities. And what was interesting is that as Christianity develops, women's roles were often suppressed due to the intersection of Christianity with the Roman society and Roman culture in which women were supposed to be silent and to to govern in the home, but not in public. And as Christianity really accommodated to a culture that emphasized those values, women's initial leadership in, in say, the early groups of, of Jesus followers that met in homes uh, got lost as those groups moved into more official public spaces. So I did find that that was true. And But what I found was that the roles of women were also emphasized in the New Testament in ways that just simply had often been overlooked and which I think fortunately are coming back into the fore again. That, for example, Mary Magdalene was the first witness to the resurrection. She's, she's named as the first witness to the resurrection, and she's mentioned uh, as present in all four Gospels. And so I was heartened by that. Or, or, for example, you can look at Romans 16 and see Paul lifting up women as leaders. But it was, it was by reading some of these extra-canonical texts that I was able to see how strong women's roles were and then see how that complemented some of the material that we have in the New Testament. Um, so that was just the beginning because then I got kind of interested in the text for themselves. And I started um, thinking about why these texts had been so marginalized. Uh, I was reading work by scholars such as Michael Williams and Karen King, who had talked about the problem of the whole term of Gnosticism and how it's not a very accurate term Primarily because, one, it takes a whole bunch of different viewpoints and perspectives and lumps them together under this one category of Gnosticism, which uh, often functioned to serve as the category for heresy or the biggest, largest group of heretics, supposedly. And then also because there are problems with the term in the sense that it's a rhetorical term. It's a term that is derogatory, it's accusatory, and it, it also serves to sort of define what would be considered orthodox Christianity from the view of those who, who dominated the Christian tradition in terms of what it isn't. So it, it actually serve, serves as a term to try to define Christianity in terms of the other, in terms of it not being, quote, Gnostic. And so um, Karen King has elaborated that very well in a book called What is Gnosticism? And so I started thinking about that. And then I also came across the work of Michel Foucault. And Foucault's an interesting person. He was thinking so much about the categories of language and how there are things that we come to believe in as sort of real categories, which he would argue are actually categories that have been created in language. So, for example, he some of his most famous work was in going to mental institutions, and he was very concerned about the role of those who were considered insane. And he did um, a long study of how that term insanity, or what was considered to be insanity, had changed and evolved over time, and how 
mental illness was, first of all, it wasn't always conceived of as illness, but the issue of what it was to be insane actually had not always been the same throughout history. So he's very good at showing how words are not stable necessarily, but how understandings can grow and change. And he used a variety of genres to do that. So he would look not only at philosophy and theology, but at journalism, at medical reports, at many different kinds of writing about a topic. And so I was interested in that aspect of Foucault, which actually Karen King also, I think, writes about very articulately. And then I got very interested in his later work. And his later work was all about this notion of the care of the self. The care of the self really is just a a kind of fancy term for the things that one does in order to transform oneself into having a true sense of identity and also um, a richer spirituality to become a more developed person. And so he was going back and he was studying various thinkers in philosophical schools from Greco-Roman times. And he traced the notion of how Socrates, for example, gives advice to a young man who's part of the elite and who's going to be a leader in society. And he talks about how in order to govern anyone, one first has to know how to govern oneself. And so a lot of the care of the self was about developing the kinds of practices that would allow one to be free of passions such as fear and anger that would allow one to become truly free, if you will. And what I started to see was how that kind of thinking was very operative in certain uh, early Christian writers. I, I often avoid the term Christian. I usually will talk about early Jesus followers or Christ communities because I think even our understanding of the notion of Christian identity is is very fluid in those first centuries. I'm not sure that they were thinking in kinds of the connotations of Christianity today. But I saw how that was operating in these in these early texts. And in particular, what I noticed was that martyrdom became a very dominant thread in texts that would come to be thought of as sort of early Christian Orthodox texts. And that martyrdom itself was being conceived of as a kind of care of the self. As I thought about that, I put that in conversation with other texts, which talked about the care of the self in terms that were more typical of Greco-Roman thought, in which Jesus was talked about as the one who helped people to have a relationship with God that allowed them to overcome their passions of fear and anger, and how that larger understanding, that broader understanding of what it would mean to be truly free in Christ was developing. And one thing that was particularly interesting is that women's voices were being suppressed, and one of the only ways that they would come to the fore in rather orthodox settings, proto-orthodox settings, if you will, was when women subjected their bodies to violence, when they endured torture and suffering and became martyrs. And so you see them represented in terms of the care of the self very positively in those kinds of contexts. But when women stand up to be preachers, teachers, healers, 
their voices are suppressed. They're told not to do that. But in some of these other texts that didn't make it into the canon, we see women such as uh, Mary in the Gospel of Mary or the figure of Thecla in the Acts of Paul and Thecla, who are able to be leaders and to be clearly teaching without ending up being martyrs. And I felt like that was a really important idea to lift up for people today, uh, because there's still a long history of women being mm, told that it's a positive thing when they subject themselves to various kinds of suffering. Very interesting. A couple of questions arise. What you're saying is that women in some way have endured a kind of oppression that in fact has shaped the canon of Scripture. If you go back, you know, even in the New Testament, that Paul says there is neither male nor female, and you go back, he's reading, doing readings of Genesis in various places, that one of the ways of even saying what the failure of humanity is, is a failure of relations, of gendered relations, of, of what it means to be male and female. In other words, not just relations toward one another, but that interrelationship is a failure of humanity. And what you're describing then is that failure that we get the picture that that's sin, that that's the, the problem, until we recognize what Paul says, that that form of subjectivity is not a prescription, but a failure, that maybe we haven't understood the whole point. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I think that very much... Um Galatians 3.28 points back to the idea that whether you read Genesis 1 or 2, you know, in Genesis 1, men and women are created at the same time. Man and woman are created at the same time. Humankind is, is all created together. And in Genesis 2, the woman comes out of the side of the man and creation is not, is not complete until you have these two aspects. I think that, that you're absolutely right that, you know, Paul is trying to point us back to a unity that in a sense transcends gender, but, but also as, as human beings, we live in a world where we think in terms of gender, even as we start to think of gender more as a spectrum rather than, you know, a, a strict dichotomy of, of two opposites of, of male and female. That notion is so much a part of our minds. I mean, in many ways, it would function, I think, as a Foucauldian mm -hmm. set of, he, he would call it a regime of knowledge, mm -hmm. right? A, a certain way of thinking and categorizing the world and people in the world. And Paul is really trying to point us back to a unity that, that existed prior at the beginning of creation. So the, what is intersecting in the conversation here is that Foucault, Derrida, Lacan, in a, a French uh, philosophical and even in a French psychoanalytic tradition, that there is the understanding that the way that meaning arises then is in and through binaries or oppositional differences that certainly is reflected in language. And then that is taken up into our understanding of male-female. That, that is that this oppositional difference becomes definitive it's interesting then that that is reflected even in an Augustinian reading, but Derrida actually does readings of Genesis that go back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That that tree then, you get an understanding of the good, 
over and against the evil, and the evil over and against the good, so that meaning arises then through oppositional differences. And that then seems to translate into the alienation and opposition reflected between the first man and woman, so that we fall into this identity through difference that is by its very nature, the way, the way that we do identity is over and against the other. It's oppositional. It's violent. I mean, that's really the, the value, I think, of the French philosophical tradition is that we get a genealogy of violence in the picture of our understanding of ourselves through language that Foucault is really the kind of foundational in, a, in the development of that understanding. And of course, that ties into translation into a kind of oppositional, agonistic understanding that takes place within ourselves that's reflected in Paul, that I do what I do not want to do and what I want to do I don't do. That is that we're, we're split, we're alienated, within ourselves, we're alienated from other people. And one of the prime ways that that alienation is reflected is in the male-female failure of relationship or a kind of oppositional difference in which one, usually the male, would oppress or suppress the female. What is being described in Foucault, in Lacan, in Paul, in this understanding, in other words, there's an understanding of male-female that is a reflection of a failure to be fully human. Yes. That as long as that kind of suppression of, of women, it, which to my mind, you know, there are all kinds of violence. There's all kinds of oppression and suppression. That it may be racial, that, yes. you know, clearly in the, the slavery was a first century problem. But isn't it interesting that nobody is now turning to Scripture and saying that, you know, we should uh, reinstitute slavery? So that, in a way, the most enduring problem in human identity is reflected in gender, gendered relations. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, I think that all of these issues intersect. And so, depending on one's particular circumstance and context, which issue is, is most important for you to resolve is going to be different, perhaps. You know, there's, there's a film that's just come out about Harriet Tubman, and I have not been able to see it yet, but certainly... And if I've it, seen it, yeah. yeah. It, I'm sure it must be wonderful. I'm hoping to see it soon. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly, you know, issues of, of gender and... Um, freedom from slavery, they're going to intersect and both be very important. You know, speaking as a white woman uh, from a, a middle-class background living in the United States of America, I would never want to prioritize the way that gender has been a, um, the oppression of women has been a very troubling category for me over issues of slavery or racial discriminations and oppressions or or others. But I do feel like that what we need to understand is that all of these ways of 
categorizing and separating things into binaries. In, in a sense, humans, we have no choice but to do that. It is the very way that we think, I think. And yet, at the same time, we have to somehow come to understand that the categories are not real. They are categories that have been created in our perceptions due to particular histories and circumstances and uses of language. And it's not an easy thing to try to pick that apart and dissolve those sort of false binary oppositions that have been created in our minds. And I think that's particularly true with categories such as orthodoxy and heresy, where groups that had different perspectives about the meaning and significance of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus were marginalized because they did not agree in whatever way with position, the position that became dominant. Christianity succeeds only where we overcome identity on the basis of binaries within language, which is, that sounds in a, in a way that may be saying it almost too superficially because Oh, that's the world that we construct. That's the world that uh, in some way needs deconstructing. There is the sense then that I think Christianity is the platform for that deconstruction, that we have the, the way of escaping the house of language as identity. And that seems to be what Paul is describing, that identity in Christ no longer throws us back simply on the resource of language per se. And I wonder if that is a depiction of two alternative understandings of self. Clearly, I think when we talk about the cure of the soul or the, the conversion or new birth, the, the depiction of therapy, it's therapeuon. You know, this is, Foucault is talking about this, but therapy is actually a word Jesus deploys and describes himself as the great physician, that he's going to bring healing, and part of that healing then is that the self is going to be reconstituted on a different order. Yeah, and I, I mean, I love what you're saying, and I'm listening and feeling like what you're saying is so very rich. I think that my own work has not been grounded as much in psychology as in trying to figure out some of the historical issues within our tradition. And so I think the thing that was very important for me to see was that following the line of the thinking of Walter Bauer and his work being brought here into the United States, you know, what Bauer said was that in some places, heresy actually preceded orthodoxy. He didn't have any other language to describe it other than that. What became so interesting for me was to see that there were these variety of ways of interpreting the significance of Jesus. What we think of as sort of mainstream Orthodox theology, uh, following this trajectory through Augustine and, and Calvin and so forth, was only one way to go, that early on there were a variety of ways of relating to Jesus, and that if we could think more broadly in terms of the way that the early followers were conceiving of Jesus as one who could help them to engage in the care of the self, that that could be very liberating for those who are struggling today with the sense of exclusivity 
that has arisen within the Christian tradition and the way it has posed itself as sort of a unique means of salvation. Oh, I think what you're saying is what I'm saying. You're just giving us the rich tradition in which orthodoxy and heterodoxy or or heresy can be identity through difference. Christianity gone bad can just be more of doing identity through a kind of oppositional difference. Absolutely. And so I think you're grounding it so nicely philosophically. And what I've been trying to do is trace out very tenuously in many respects, right, trying to frame a kind of new historiography, a new way of telling the story that really shows sort of specifically how that happened in particular context as a certain kind of Christianity triumphed. And really, martyrdom was seen as the ultimate means of care of the self. Run that down for us. You know, how does facing death relate to our understanding of the self? So it's interesting because if you look at the works of people like Ignatius of Antioch, when he discusses his facing of martyrdom, because he's writing letters to various groups as he is is traveling, you know, we think he's traveling uh, to Rome and he he feels that he will indeed become a martyr for Christ. And as we look at the the works that describe, for example, the martyrdom of Polycarp, for me, most interestingly, the martyrdom of a young woman named Perpetua, who died in Carthage in probably the year 203, we can trace it pretty closely. They talk about it's not just the actual final event that's important. It's the whole process of facing martyrdom that allows them to develop the kinds of self-control, the kinds of patience, the kinds of endurance that Ignatius actually says will allow him to be a Christian. He says he's not a Christian yet, but he hopes to be through his death. And it's through this ongoing process, a process that really forces the self to confront that which would, would cause fear and anxiety and anger to arise, that they feel that they are being transformed. And I think that on the one hand, that's very valuable. And for example, Perpetua is described very much in terms of in a sense of a person who is overcoming her fears and her angers. And I, and I find that remarkable to find a woman represented in the terms of the care of the self that way. You do find that sometimes in Greco-Roman literature. But what's kind of interesting is that at the same time, Perpetua is transgressing some of the social norms of her society, for example, by rejecting her her father's advice, you know, refusing to obey her father's advice, even at one point, uh, finally relinquishing her infant. She's being represented in terms of the care of the self. That's very positive. But what I find rather difficult is that if we look at that context alone as kind of a model for spiritual formation, it can become distorted because what I find happening in some of these other early texts is that care of the self revolves around notions of seeking to overcome those fears and anxieties here in this life and living fully for Christ rather than dying for Christ. So 
as time goes on, I, I find it problematic that this focus on facing suffering, subjecting oneself to suffering and torture and death is sort of lifted up as the ultimate means of care of the self. Mm. Um, and I feel like there's a, a fuller, richer vision if we look to texts, for example, like the Gospel of Mary that talk about the ascent of the soul through some of these crippling emotions and desires, or the journey of a woman like Thecla, not just her physical journey, but her spiritual journey, without that necessity to embrace a death that is, the death itself could be meaningful, but I think what I wanted to, to flesh out or open up or, or broaden or enhance our thinking about is that it is, it is not the only path through which one starts to think about mm-hmm. salvation through fully being a part of the body of Christ. As you're describing this, I'm sorry to go psychological on you again, but Freud and in a Lacanian understanding talk about death drive. And of course, the end of the death drive is that it, literally that it is a kind of subjection to destruction. In other words, that, that it is a destructive drive that undoes us, that we would in fact imagine that there's salvation in death, which is just not Christianity. Christianity is not, oh, that death saves us. I think sometimes there's a a distorted Christianity that will talk about death as if it's salvific. But of course, that is a lie. No, that's, that's exactly right on, because what I was seeing is that as the cult of the martyrs develops, right, that there is so much emphasis on the idea that if one dies, one is assured, if one dies in Christ as a martyr and imitates the, the death of Christ, and really the, the idea of Christ's death as sacrificial and that the suffering of Christ is something that gets lifted up, I believe, in that period of persecution, martyrdom, more than in the very earliest forms of thinking. And in fact, there, there comes to be this big debate about the resurrection of the flesh. So there's a lot of criticism of those who would deny the resurrection of the actual flesh, because for what becomes the dominant form of Christianity, as we'll know it through the centuries, the idea is that one's actual flesh will be resurrected. And it's you even see mosaics of, um, you know, the beasts in the arena spitting up the pieces of flesh of the martyrs. And I think that what some of these other texts are trying to say is, my gosh, that's a total distortion. It's even a lie to lead people down that path of thinking. Because when Paul talks about the resurrection, he describes a real resurrection, for lack of a better term than real, but he doesn't talk about it as a fleshly resurrection. As you know, he talks about it as a pneumatic resurrection. That term is often translated as a spiritual resurrection, but what he's actually saying is, I I believe he's speaking in terms that would have been used by the Stoics, where pneuma is kind of the fine material substance of which the entire world is made, but it's not the same as sarks or flesh. And so I think we often we, we make one more of those false binary oppositions between resurrection and non-resurrection, right? Whereas they're thinking there are more than two categories. It's possible to believe in resurrection, new life in Christ, if you will, but at the same time, 
not embrace this notion of a fleshly resurrection, which becomes kind of a a false, I think what some of these texts are saying is that people are, the little ones are being led astray, to use the terms of the text, one of the texts itself, into thinking that they can achieve a sense of salvation, of assured eternal bliss, if they subject themselves to martyrdom, and that that is like missing the point entirely. You can put it in terms of human sickness, that in our opposition, that a psychological struggle with ourselves that Freud is describing and McConnell describing as death drive, that there is the idea that what's the death drive? Well, in some way, it's the, the drive to escape the death drive. That is that the thing is, if you think of it, Freud originally encountered it in his patients in the compulsion to repeat. How do you get rid of that compulsion? Well, ultimately, the compulsion drives you to destruction so that the hurdle to achieving escape is, in fact, escape from, it is the destruction of the self. And so that's the bind that, of course, I think what's being described is the bind of sin that the Bible talks about. And that is that the way that we would save ourselves is to destroy ourselves, that our salvation systems are inherently self-destructive. That's Jesus. You know, he says that in all four Gospels, that he who would save his life shall lose it, because the very mode of salvation, self-salvation, we might say, is that you're going to have to get rid of yourself. This is reflected in mental disease, but it's also reflected in much of human religion, that death then is depicted as a kind of doorway into an ultimate bliss or into reality. This is Buddhism. I think it's, you know, the Eastern tradition, but actually it's just religion that in some way that on the other side of death is the transcendent, the reality. So that death itself becomes the means of manipulating ultimate reality. That's not Christianity. I think people confuse. And so what happens in a sacrificial Christianity that you're describing? Well, the the death of Christ becomes uh, something that, oh, this is a kind of a negotiation within the Trinity in which God needs Christ to die so that he can be relieved of his anger. If you put it in terms of the care of the self, God has a passion problem cured through death, the death of him. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. We're reading the sickness into God. But what I think is so interesting is that the realization that that, you know, that there, of course, was no one Christianity in in the time of, you know, that, that Jesus, of course, was a Jew, and that these early followers of Christ were not all thinking in terms of what you have just described, that in fact, there are these this rich variety of other ways of seeing the care of the self that are alive and circulating before some of this theology becomes established as dominant within Christianity. That was a revelation for me that was so important. And that we find some of those paths described. I I think when you go back and look at the New Testament, that certainly you find um, 
possibilities for a variety of interpretations there too. But I think that when, you know, we know that the New Testament has 27 books, but that there are over a hundred writings circulating among the early followers of Jesus. And that it's really only when we read across a wider spectrum of writings that we can see this more fully, that we don't have to be trapped in that kind of traditional, what we think of now as traditional theology, but that indeed there were these other possible interpretations early on, and that those voices and interpretations have been lost to us. So I guess I, I just feel like it is so important to hear the voices of those who are speaking in dialogues like the Gospel of Mary in order to be able to embrace a vision that will work for us here and now in the 21st century, if indeed we are um, someone for whom some of those theologies simply don't work anymore, theologies that we might have encountered in more fundamentalist churches or much more traditional churches. Yeah, I wonder if you've compared your work, you know, that what penal substitution with Calvin or with divine satisfaction with Anselm are flowing out of a Western theological tradition, I think, that set, is set up by uh, Augustine. And of course, the Eastern tradition just doesn't follow this trajectory. It, and so it has a very different picture of the problem, the human predicament, and of the solution, that it, it was it's not a sacrificial atonement as you have in, in the West. It's not penal substitution or divine satisfaction, because the problem is not in the mind of God. The problem in, in the East is much more focused than on the anthropological nature of the problem and the solution, this is after all the reason for the incarnation, uh, is, is focused there. So I'm wondering, if, have you looked at or compared what you're doing to a kind of Eastern uh, theological understanding? Well, yes, but I think actually what I've done is find various answers to that question in thinkers uh, ranging from, say, Basilides to the author of the Testimony of Truth to others. I think what's really important for us to realize is that there were a variety of ways of thinking about this issue. And that, that's what I'm referring to when I think about ways of conceiving of the meaning of the death of Jesus, that the Gospel of Judas is another uh, very interesting example, right? And there isn't one, there aren't even just two, there are a variety of ways of responding to that question. And that it's only when we are able to understand that people who look to Jesus as their inspiration, as their model, as their savior, in the under the broad understanding of that that term, that we realize that indeed um, our way of resolving it in the West or even in the East, that those are simply human theological constructions and reasonings. But that it's important to realize that there was a wide diversity and variety of interpretations in the first, second, and, and third centuries, if you will. And actually, I, I do talk about some of those various interpretations in, in the book that I wrote about the care of the soul or the care of the self in, in early Christian texts. There's kind of both a critique of the notion of what we've come to call atonement theology and at the same time counter answers. And those answers are often framed in terms of understanding the self as in need of liberation here and now in this life, 
and that whatever is to come has to start here and now. It's it's not grounded in, as you say, a desire for death or a, or a, a death drive. Yeah, it seems that we could put a value or we can distinguish. There is something wrong with people. <laughs> and it's not hard to say what that is, that people are self-destructive. They're masochistic or they're sadistic. There is evil, and we can describe that evil, that it has a particular anatomy. We can describe it because Christ, in fact, has given us a diagnosis of the human understanding. But I'm afraid that what has happened is that because of the slant of particular theologies, actually even more recent, that uh, we've gotten caught up into in Calvin in penal substitution, that what gets focused on is not the cure for the human disease, the, the sin that we have. We don't think of sin in, in those terms, but we think of sin, especially with the lawyer Calvin, in terms of the transgression of a, a law, and the resolution is also a legal transaction taking place in the Godhead. In other words, I think there is a real departure from the care of the self, the care of the soul, the therapy you know, that is depicted in the New Testament that has, in fact, gotten lost in our depiction of Christianity as saving us from a future category, hell, and taking us to a future category, heaven. What you're describing is, well, no, that this addresses the human predicament in a present tense fashion. If you have enjoyed part one of this podcast, we hope that you will indicate this on social media. We appreciate your pointing others to the work that we are doing. You can also visit our Patreon page or donate through our website. We are an independent ministry dependent on donations. This was part one of the conversation with Dr. Deborah Saxon and part two Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.